Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from our series, Great is the Lord, a study on the book of Malachi. For more information on CBC or how you can get connected, go to the website, www.cbcsavannah.com. My prayer for this series, Lord, is that we as a church would walk away just with a more great view of who you are, that, that, that you would show yourself to be the great and mighty God that you are, and that we would, in a tangible way, sense that and know that and believe that, and we would see that, and, and your love and your grace would be just more real to us. And that is a work, Father, of your spirit, which you've given to us, and he must move. And so I ask and beg that he would, that he would use a guy who's just a broken vessel to proclaim a perfection and a perfect God to your people, Lord. So please help me, because I, I can't do it. I know I can't. I, I myself wander. I myself lose sight of your greatness. And so I ask that you would please fill me and empower me to share with your people and to point back to you the greatness of who you are. Uh, may that be just what we talk and think about for these next weeks and beyond that. And may it shape our lives and shape what we do and shape how we respond to you. Uh, Lord, please do that great work in this church. For your name's sake and for Christ's glory, I pray. Amen. Thanks. You guys have a seat. You know, last week's fun. It's fun to be in the big room. There's something about being in a room where you can smell the next guy's breath, right? Come on. Let's, let's be honest. That's very CBC. You know who brushes their teeth based on where you sit in church every morning, right? Um, I'm excited because we get to start a new book today. I always love starting a new book of the Bible. We are in the book of Malachi. For those of you new to the Bible, it's not Malachi, all right? I know you're thinking, oh, there's an Italian in the Old Testament. No, there's not. There's not an Italian, all right? His name is Malachi. It is the last book of the Old Testament. And before we jump in, okay, I got two homework assignments for you, okay? Here's the first one, that this week you are to read through the book of Malachi four times. It'll take you five minutes a pop. All right, there only, it's only four chapters. It's super short. Just read through it a couple times, and if you're like, I don't, this, doesn't, this doesn't make sense, I don't understand it, it's okay. We'll be working it with, through it the next seven weeks, and you'll start seeing it more as a whole. But just sit down and read it in one setting um, just so you understand it. And, and second homework is this. We, if you got a little bulletin this morning, you should have gotten one of these inside of it. This is a reading plan. You have the text we're going to be in every week for the next seven weeks, and then underneath each text, there is some supplemental reading. Just kind of, we're going to be talking about certain topics of God's greatness, and so we've given you a couple other passages you can reflect on and you can read through, maybe in your community group, maybe as a family, but just read through these as well. They go along with where we're going to be, and that'll help you just grasp kind of what we're talking about a little bit more and reinforce these things as we seek to equip each other to follow Christ through community in the Bible, as we talked about a couple weeks. So... The book of Malachi, if you haven't yet, try to turn there. If you don't know where it is, it's fine. Turn to the table of contents. It's the last book of the Old Testament, um, and we're going to be here for seven weeks. And I have two real big goals for this morning as we jump into this book. The first one is this, that you would understand what the context of, 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 is going on in the book of Malachi. Sometimes it's easy to get confused with the Old Testament because it's not always chronological. All right, sometimes it is, but chronologically, the last book of the Old Testament is not Malachi, it's Nehemiah, which is like way earlier in your table of contents. And so it's easy to get lost and confused and not knowing what's going on. So I want to set the table of what is going on when Malachi shows up, because that'll open up the book for you guys a little bit more. 
right? That's the first thing. And the second thing is we're just going to jump into the first five verses and kind of unpack those because they're going to set the stage as we talk about the greatness of God over the next few weeks, okay? So that's where we're going. Let me start by saying, where does Malachi fit in the whole kind of narrative of the scripture? Because it's a narrative of, of God creating man, then falling away, and him redeeming and restoring all things. Where does it fit in that context? Got a little timeline for you here, all right? Done by the CBC experts. All right, it's not perfect as far as like size, but we're going to work through this. This is really the Old Testament kind of in a nutshell. So let's just spend a couple minutes kind of unpacking where in the, the kind of the big narrative of scripture does Malachi fit. Let's start in the beginning. All right, start at the, to the creation and the fall. God creates Adam and Eve in perfect communion with himself. They rebel. The fall, the sin enters into the, to the world. Um, and there's, there's repercussions. There's the curses. God says, this is going to happen because you have sinned. Now we are separate. But in that context, right after the fall, God makes his first promise of a redeemer. In Genesis 3, he says, one day, the seed of a woman will crush the head of the serpent. And it's your first prophecy in the, in the scripture of, of a Messiah, of one who will come and rescue. And you go a couple thousand years, and the next big event you see is a guy named Abram, who's living in Mesopotamia. God shows up and says, Abram, I want you to go to this land you've never seen. I'm going to give you so many kids, you can't count them. And then you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, Abram. There's a big problem. He's 80 years old, and he's got no kids. And his wife is 60. But he believes God. He heads to the promised land. And 20 years later, God fulfills his promise. He is 100. His wife, Sarah, is 80. And they have a child. All right? And because an 80-year-old pregnant woman is a funny thing, he calls the baby laughter or funny or Isaac in the Hebrew. And Isaac grows up to be a man. Isaac has two boys, two twin boys. And these two twin boys could not be more opposite. Okay, the first one comes out and he's all red and hairy like Elmo. And so they call him Red or Esau. That's what his name means, Red. The second one is holding on to his brother's foot as they come out of their mother. And so they call him Surplanter or Cheater or Jacob is what the Hebrew is. And he lives up to his supplanting, cheating name. Because when he's older, he steals his brother's blessing. And he steals his brother's birthright. And he has to run away because Esau wants to kill him. And as he's running away, God shows up one night. And he has a wrestling match with the angel of the Lord. And at the end of the night, when the angel of the Lord says, okay, this is enough. All right, he let him hang for a while. And he touches him on his hip. He dislocates his hip. And he says, you're no longer going to be called liar, deceiver, surplanter, Jacob. I am changing your name now to Israel, which means one who strives or wrestles with God. So Israel goes off, and he has 12 sons, right? And their names are Simeon and Levi and Judah. And God says, it's Judah. I choose Judah to hold the scepter. He's the one that's going to come through. And they go down after a while to Egypt, and they're in Egypt for 400 years. And they're waiting, and eventually they are delivered by Charlton Heston, and he shows up, and he takes them to the promised land. 
It takes them 40 years, but they finally get to the promised land. Joshua takes over. He leads them for another 40 years as they drive out the nations. And after he dies, they are ruled by these men called judges and one woman named Deborah. You got Gideon and Samson and Ehud and Jephthah. And these men function as kind of like governors, and they lead the people for 300 plus years as they're in the land. And eventually the people say, you know what? Everyone else is a king. We want a king. We want to be like everyone else. We want a king. And God says, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And he gives him a king. His name is Saul, and he's lousy king. But after Saul, God raises up a man who is a great king, and he's short because short people make great kings. <laughs> and his name is David, and he's from the tribe of Judah, which is what God said the scepter would not depart from. And David is a great king, makes some mistakes, but he's a great king. And his son Solomon is a great king, even though he makes some mistakes. But after David and Solomon, these are the golden years of Israel, Solomon's son is a bad king. And because he's a bad king, the kingdom of Israel splits, which is sad, which is why there's a smiley face. And it splits into two nations, the north and the south. The north is 10 tribes called Israel. The south is, is two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they call that Judah. And so when you read through Kings and Chronicles, you'll see the king of Israel, the king of Judah. That's what it's talking about. And so the north doesn't have any, hardly any good kings. All right? They're rebellious. The south has a couple, but not many more. And God continues to send prophets to these people. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, Nahum, Habakkuk. He sends all these prophets trying to get them to turn back to him, trying to point them back to who God is, and even promising the future Messiah. And you have all these prophets in the, in the Old Testament, right? Understand there's three different groups of prophets. There's the pre-exilic prophets. Those are the ones that came before they go into exile. There's the exilic. That's just Daniel and Ezekiel. There's just two of them. They prophesy when they're in exile. And then you have three guys that come after the exile. When they get back in the land, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the one we're looking at today. So all these pre-exilic guys are like, turn back to God, turn back to God. They don't. In the north, eventually, in 722, God brings Assyria, and they're taken away into exile. The southerners make it a little longer, but in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He drops a bomb on the city. You can read about what happens with Daniel. He's, he, that's going on in his time frame in the lion's den and all that. That's Daniel, all right? But the south is taken away, and Israel is gone, and the temple is gone, and the city of Jerusalem is demolished until the, the Persians conquer the Babylonians, and 70 years later, the Persian king says, you guys can go back to your land, which is happy. And so in 538... A bunch of them go back to Jerusalem. They start to build the temple. They stop because it gets hard, but God raises up a man named Haggai to encourage them, one of the post-exilic prophets, to encourage them to build. They finish. Zechariah is there encouraging them spiritually all at the same time, so they would finish the temple, and they do. But the city is still in ruins because there's no wall. So in 445, God raises up a guy named Nehemiah, and he comes and he builds the wall with the people. And there's a revival in the city. Because the people are starting to fall into the very same things that, that, that cause them to go into exile. They're marrying people from other nations. They're not providing for the temple. They're, they're letting the culture influence them. Their worship is, is polluted. All these things that got them exiled in the first place. And so Nehemiah, there's a revival. And all the people say, we will never go that path again. They make promises to God. We will never let our daughters marry pagans. We will never let the temple go uh, take, not get and take care of. We will never stop tithing. We will never worship that way again. We promise God. But then as soon as Nehemiah has to go back to the king, they fall into the same exact stuff once again. Right? And it's in that context, when Nehemiah leaves, God raises up his man Malachi. 
about 4.30-ish. And here's the thing about the people. They, they, their, their hearts are cold. They're, they're, they're doing all these disobedient things. They're marrying all these people. They're doing all these things God said not to do, but they're still showing up at temple. Every Saturday, they show, you go to the parking lot at the temple, it's packed. Look in the windows, everyone's hands are up. They're singing the songs, they're making the sacrifices, they're going through the motions and doing all the religious stuff, but their hearts are dead. And there's an orthodoxy, they believe all the right stuff, but it's a cold, dead orthodoxy. And they're mad at God because the crops are bad and because all this, and they're blaming him. And there's a bitterness and a resentment, and there is no joy. But they're going to temple. They're going to church. But they're miserable. Right? And it is in that context that God raises up his guy to awaken the spirits and the hearts of his people. To get them out of this cold, dead orthodoxy that they're living in. Right? And he uses Malachi. And that's the context where he shows up. And, and what's interesting is he doesn't, he doesn't do it the way, he doesn't start with their behavior. He's like, okay, we got to clean this act up. That's not where he goes, not to start anyway, right? What he's going to do, he's going to use this format. It's a question and answer format where he's going to make an accusation. He's going to do it six times. He's going to say, you do this. And just like a kind of a spoiled teenager, they say, nah-uh. And he says, uh-huh. And he shows them where it is that they are failing. So he says, you do this, nuh-uh, yes, and he shows them. And every single time, what he ultimately is doing, though, is he's going to point them back to his greatness. One aspect of what he, why he is great, one aspect of his character that is great, because he's not worried about their behavior, he's worried about their heart. And the way to their heart is for them to see the vastness and the bigness and the greatness of their God. So he is going to point them back. And so what we're gonna do just for seven weeks is we're gonna every week highlight one aspect of God's greatness. Is there gonna be a response? Yes, but it's always in light of who God is. He's not looking for behavior. He's not looking for cold orthodoxy. He's looking for our hearts. And he wants to point us back so that at the end, we say, great is the Lord. When you read through this week a couple times, you highlight how many times it talks about God's greatness in this book. Just in four chapters. It's on every page. Great is the Lord. And what we want as a church, y'all, and this is in our statement, our mission statement, it's for God's glory. I don't want you ever leaving this church thinking, man, we have a great church. I don't want you to ever think that was a great sermon. I don't want you to think, oh, they got a great worship team. I want you to leave thinking great is the Lord. That is the response of God's people. Not great is the church. It's great is the Lord. And so that is our goal, wherever you're at. Because some of you are doing really well. And let's be honest, some of you, you're going through the motions. You kind of show up. Heart's a little cold. Spiritually dry. Prayer life is dead. And you're thinking, I don't know what all these people are excited about because I don't, I'm not excited. I don't know why all these people are so joyful. I'm not, I'm not really. Right? And maybe there's some resentment and some bitterness because your life's not going where you thought it should go or whatever. Well, for all of us, wherever we're at, we're going to come back and just kind of get close to, over these next seven weeks, the greatness of God. And so let's jump in to Malachi. If you haven't found it by now, then give up. Just look at the slides. <laughs> Okay, just, just telling you. All right. All right. Malachi 1 1, right? The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. All right. That oracle sounds like a fancy word. It just means the burden. It literally means the heaviness. This is a heavy message 
All right? It's heavy because it's from, it's from the Lord and it's to his people. And notice Malachi is just the messenger. This is not Malachi's message. This is God's word to his people through Malachi, his messenger, which, by the way, is what Malachi means, my messenger. That's all he is. He is the messenger. Right? And so where does God start? With a rebellious people who have broken their promises, whose hearts are cold, who are mad at him, who are resentful of God. Where does he start in awakening them up? He doesn't start where I would start. Because if it was me, this is how I would start. You are a bunch of crackheads. What are you doing? Why are you? It's been a thousand years and you still haven't learned. Did not exile teach you something? Did not, did not bad crops teach you? Great day in the morning. What are you people going to learn? That is where I would start. That is not where he starts. Look what he says. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. And he uses a Hebrew tense here that speaks not only of the past, but it speaks of the present and the future. You could translate it, I have loved you in the past, I still love you today, and I will always love you. And notice, the, notice how personal this is. This is not God so loved the world. This is not a general statement how God loves everybody. That may be true, but he's talking to them. I loved you. I have loved you as an individual. I love you, Israel. I love you. You have broken every one of my rules. You've rejected me. You're mad at me. You're blaming me. You're questioning me. You're blowing me off. Your hearts are cold towards me. I've loved you. How radically different is that from the way we think and the way we even act? The way we think often, especially because we tend towards religiosity, let's be honest, just like them, we think that, well, God loves me when I do my quiet time. God loves me when I've had a good week. God loves me when I'm good. And when things are going well in my life, God loves me because he's, because he's blessing me because I must, you know, he must bless me when I do good. And he doesn't. That's the way we think. And even further, the way we act is this. I love you when you love me. I love how easy, parents know this, how easy it is to love the kids when they get good grades. How easy is it when they hit the big shot, when they have a good game, when they clean their room? How easy is it to love your spouse when they're kind, when they give you gifts, when they take you on a date? How easy is it to love your roommate when they finally take the trash out and clean out the sink from their dishes? That's easy. But that's what we do. When you, love, when you do good things, I love you. When I, I'm good, God loves me. That is completely opposite of how God does. See, this is what I do. I, I, this is where I tend. When, I, when we, two fateful years ago, went to the shelter to adopt Milton. Now, let me just tell you, if I had a flux capacitor, I would go back in time, and I would, I would tie myself up. I, my wife is on. But anyway, so what did I do? I go into the shelter, and I look around, and I'm telling you, I'm looking for... I want the best dog, because I don't want no daggum ugly mutt, all right? So I'm looking around, ugly, 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 whoa, put that thing down, ugly, ugly, okay, that's what I'm doing, right? And I finally say, oh, this one, that's the best looking one. He seems to be calm right now. <laughs> He's clean. He's happy, and he seems to like me. Maybe he'll listen to me one day. Maybe I can raise him up to be like old Yeller. <laughs> so I am going to choose him because he is the best. That's, that's what I do. 
I want the best. I want the one I think is going to give me the, make me look good. I want the one that's going to help me, serve me. I choose them. That's what religious people do. That's what religious people think. What does God do? He walks in up to the ugliest, worm-infested, smelly thing and say, I'm going to love this one. And I'm going to let my love motivate him to follow me. Right? I know he's going to be disobedient. I know he's going to smell. I know he's going to get worms. I know all that, but I'm going to love him anyway unconditionally. See, that's the difference between us and God, and that is what he is telling his people. Even though you have cold hearts, even though you're disobedient, even though your priests are knuckleheads, even though your worship is empty, and we'll see that next week, I have loved you. And as shocking as that is, what's more shocking is their response to God when he tells them he loves them. Look what they say. But you say, how have you loved us? What they are saying is Whatever, God. They are saying, no, you don't. You don't love us. And they're calling God a liar. They're saying, you, you say one thing, but you do another thing. Because if you loved us, the crops would be good. If you loved us, we wouldn't have a Persian king. If you loved us, life would be easier. That's what they're saying, right? Look, and, and that takes guts. And maybe we don't have the guts to say that to God, but I bet sometimes we think it. If you love me, God, then how come my husband is this? If, if, if you love me, then how come my mom got cancer, or I'm a widow, or the kids are rebellious, or I lost my job, or I didn't get into that school, but I have to go to this school, or my boyfriend broke up? And you can fill in the blanks. But what we're saying when we question that is, I deserve better, God. I deserve better. You owe me. That's what, we're, that's what they're saying. And what I love about God in this text, and we always had this view, God, the Old Testament is angry. If he was angry, he would have smoked them right then. But he is gracious and kind, and he can handle the hard questions and even the accusations. And so he's going to respond, and he's going to actually prove his love. He doesn't, he doesn't owe them anything. But he's going to say, you want to know how I love you? Let me show you. Let me give you an example of my love. And so he does. He says this, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. Now, that's a culturally, historically, idiom-loaded phrase. And so let me kind of unpack it a little bit. But ultimately, it goes all the way back to those two twins, Elmo and the cheater. Okay? That's why it's important to know your, your Old Testament history. These two boys, not only were they physically different, they are so different in so many ways. Esau, the firstborn, he is a man's man. He drives a truck. He builds sheds. He goes out in the morning with his bow and fills the truck bed with lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and he brings home the bacon. He is a skilled hunter. He's a man's man. Jacob said, it says of him, that he dwells in the tents. He does, he's got sunscreen on. He, I don't need sun. You know, I, I, he's, he's a little bit of a mama's boy. He drives a hybrid. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you drive a hybrid, don't, don't email me. <laughs> email Rad. Email Rad, okay? But he, they're just so different. In fact, he's an inside guy. He's an outside guy. And it says that the dad, Isaac, loved Esau. But his mama, Rebecca, she loved Jacob. Right? She loved him. Totally different. Now, if you were choosing to build a nation, 
You're going to start a nation. Which one are you going to go to? Just on the externals. The guy that has a truck and he shoots a bow and he's kind of a warrior and he's rough and tough. Or are you going to, this guy over here who kind of dwells in the tents. The guy with the bow who can provide for you. The guy that can knit you a sweater. Which one are you going to? I know where I'm going. But that's not where God goes. He says, I have chosen Jacob, which is completely culturally radical because the older is supposed to be the one who has the authority and everything goes to him. But God had prophesied before that they were born. He says, the older, he is going to serve the younger. I have chose Jacob. He is my guy. And in this language here in, in Malachi, it's, it's the language of covenant. It's the language of election. It's the language of choice. He's not saying, I hate you and I hate you. He, his idea is the same thing when Jesus in the Gospels tell the disciples. He says, if you want to come after me, you got to hate your father and mother and your brothers and your sisters, and then you can follow me. He's not saying hate your mom and dad. That's not what Jesus is saying. That would be contradict what he says elsewhere. Obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. But the idea is, you're going to have to choose me or your parents. Which one are you going to love the most by way of comparison? I want you to love your parents, but I want you to love me so much more that it seems like it's, it's, it's even hate because you love me with your whole heart. So you, I want you to choose me. And what he, he's saying here is I have chosen Jacob. He gets the blessing. He gets the covenants. He gets the promises. All the nations of the world will be blessed in him. Remember, his name is changed to Israel. The Messiah comes through Israel. And here's the thing. You have to understand, it's not because he's a good dude. He's not. He is a liar. He is a con man. He steals his brother's birthright. And then he dresses up in an Elmo suit, gets all hairy and goes to his dad, hey dad, here's some soup. Oh, me saw. And he tricks his dad into blessing him and then he has to run away. He is a con man liar. It's not, God did not look down and say, oh, yeah, but he's got potential to be a great leader. No, he chooses him because of his greatness, because that's who he is. That's what God does. And what he is going back here in Malachi and saying, you want to know how I've loved you? I chose you. You were fatherless. You were aimless. And I made you my people. I adopted you. I gave you the law so you would know who I am. I gave you, I gave you the prophets so you would hear my voice. I gave you the temple so you could experience my presence. I gave you the land so you can experience my blessing. I will give you my Messiah so you can ultimately experience, experience me. I have given you everything. And compare what I've done for the Edomites, Esau's descendants. Look what I did to them. I've laid waste to his hill country. I've left his heritage jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And if you read the Old Testament, the Edomites and the Israelites were constantly fighting. They were constant enemies and eventually they're destroyed. And you can read about it in Obadiah. There's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to Edom's destruction. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, Obadiah. If you couldn't find Malachi, you'll never find Obadiah, okay? <laughs> but the idea is, I am for you, Israel. I am against them. How have I loved you? The fact that you are still around a thousand years later when all you've done is rebel shows you that I am for you. And just as a side note, why is Israel still around? Because God is for Israel and he has a future. There's been a partial hardening, but God has future plans for Israel. There's no more Edomites. There's no more Ninevites. There's no more Assyrians. There's no more all these other places. 
Why is Israel still around, even though they haven't had a land for 2,000 years until 1949? Because God has made a covenant with Israel. He's going to use them again. And he's faithful. But here's the point. What does God do to awaken the cold-heartedness of his people who are rebellious, who have orthodoxy, but they don't have joy, they don't have worship? Where does he go? He says, can you see the greatness of my love for you? I've loved you. Yeah, you're frozen chosen. I loved you. You're rebellious. I loved you. And, And I don't have seven points or six outlines or four Bs or anything else this morning. Here's what I have. Where do we start when we're just working through the greatness of God? Ethan said it so well. God's love is where we start. That's where he starts. He, he wants them to repent. Is there going to be some in your grill? Yes, he's going to get up in their face. But that's not where he starts because he wants their heart and he wants them to see his great love. That's how he deals with their idolatry, their worship problem, their money issues. And so you have to remember, CBC, this is what I want you to remember. That when you... 27 years ago, we're in college acting like a knucklehead, not even close to a relationship with God. He still loved you then. And when you were an agnostic and an atheist and do all these cool things, because that was the cool thing to do to impress the girls, he still loved you when you were that. And some of you right now, you're caught up in you know, nastiness on the internet and all these other things. You think you're hiding it. And what God is saying this morning is, despite all that trash, I still love you. And I don't want you to destroy yourself with that. I love you. When, you, when, when there was the affair, when there was the divorce, when there's the addiction, I still love you. When, when you're seeking more and more at the, the office and just get more money and more this and more that, and every good thing God has given you, you don't give him thanks for, and you're just kind of going after more, and think, oh, God must be blessing me because things are going good. No, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. He wants you to see his great love for you. Some of you, you've had a horrible spiritual week, but just fight with the kids, fight with the parents, whatever it is. Some of you kids are just, you know, kind of sneaking out and lying to your parents and thinking, oh, this is great. I'm getting away with it. God is saying, please, I love you. I don't want you to destroy yourself. See my great love. Let it drive you to myself. I love you. Some of you are just caught up in some kind of addiction or depression or anxiety, maybe it's same-sex attraction, and you just feel unworthy to even come in the door. And what God is saying is, my love for you is not based on your performance. You have to understand that. It is based on my son's performance. I love you. And that's what he's saying to the church. And you say, well, it doesn't feel like it because of X, Y, and Z, because the crops haven't come in because of all these things. It may not feel like it, but our circumstances don't dictate our theology. Scripture does. And he says, as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high is that? Pretty high. So great is his love towards you. From everlasting to everlasting, how far is that? It's infinite. How great is his love towards you? That's what Scripture says. That's where we come back to. He wants us to see, and he starts, how great is my love for you? Do you get it? Look what you have in me. Let me illustrate it this way, with a hypothetical situation that may or may not have taken place in our house. Let's just say, hypothetically, that someone ran over the same child's bike three times in the driveway. The man of the house did that, hypothetically. But hypothetically, whose fault was it? The child who left the bike in the driveway but we won't discuss that, right? We'll talk about the fact that the same child's bike, three different bikes, has been run over three different times in the course of the last year and a half. Let's say after the third time this happens, third time's a charm, this child is despondent and sad because his bike is once again ruined by his sinfulness and leaving it in the driveway. 
And so the father figure comforts the little man named Trip and <laughs> hugs him and says, it's okay, buddy. But he's, he's despondent. He cannot be comforted. At that exact moment, in the middle of his tears, there's a phone call. Now, this is the hypothetical part. That There's a lawyer on the line that says, um, a distant relative has passed away. He has left your youngest child, Trip, $500 million. It's in his account right now. Thank you very much. Now, I can come over and say, Trip, I got good news for you. You're a half a billionaire. But in that moment, he doesn't want to hear about that. He just wants his bike fixed. He doesn't care about what he really has. He doesn't understand that I could go buy like 18 Walmarts and have all the bikes I want. All he's thinking about is his little bike that he wants fixed right now. But he doesn't get it. And what God is trying to tell the people of Israel and us this morning, wherever you are at, is I know the bike is broke and that is sad. But do you see what you have in your account? You have 500 million. You are rich because you have my love, because I am yours. I am the pearl of great price. I am the treasure that has been hidden in a field and the man finds it and he sells all that he has because it's so valuable to get that field and get that treasure. That is what I am. So I know the bike is sad, but do you see what you have in me, Israel? Church, do you see what you have in the love of Christ? He has chosen to love you. He has chosen you. And I know those words, I'm fighting words for some of y'all. Shoes, election, ooh. You're all the karate kidding in the back. I see you, right? Here's the thing. The doctrine of election is never meant to be divisive. And it saddens me when I hear people fight over it. It does. In fact, there's people in this town who have told people not to come to this church because we teach the doctrine of election. That is sad. That is sad. Here, the doctrine of election is meant to be a comfort to the church. It is not an evangelistic strategy. It is God wanted you. He chose you. He drew you. He opened your eyes. He made you alive. Isn't that awesome? It doesn't matter what you did. It's all based on him. It is meant to be a comfort. Do I understand all the details? No, but Paul didn't either. Read Romans 11. But I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, let me give you a quote from Spurgeon. I used it before. If Spurgeon can't figure it out, then I can't figure it out. So here, let me, let me just read this. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chose me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked on me with special love. See, when, when it's all about God and what he's done, it gives him the glory and I get none, which is exactly what we're about. And, and so you want to argue about it? Go argue. All I know is this. In love, he predestined me for adoption as a son through Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 1. That's where I come back to. Do I understand it? No, but I don't need to. What I do is I delight in it, and I rejoice in it, and I celebrate it because it's God's goodness to me, and that is the design for the church. And if you are a Calvinist and you are arrogant, then you're not a Calvinist. And if you're 19 and you're reading Piper, stop, and don't open your mouth for 10 whole years. <laughs> I'm just telling you, all right? You come talk to me. I'll, get, I'll deal with that, right? Because it's not meant to be a doctrine that causes arrogance, but humility and celebration. Because God demonstrated his love, and that while we were sinners, he died for us. And here's what he wants. 
All that to say is this. What is the response he wants from his church? What does he say in verse 5? He says, your own eyes, Israel, shall see this. And you will say, circle that, say. You will physically say this. Great is the Lord. Not great is the church. Not great is Bill Fowler. Not great is CBC. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. That is the desire of this series. That's why we're in it. That you would walk out and say, great is the Lord. Why? Because he loved me when I was a knucklehead. And he wanted me when no one else did. Great is the Lord. And have, it, have any of you ever seen a, a, a real mountain? And I'm not ta- I know you're like, yeah, I was in Atlanta last week. They got a mountain. No, that's not a mountain. That's called a hill. All right? I'm talking about a mountain where there's something called snow on the top of it. I know you have there are glaciers, right? A couple opportunities in my life, I've seen really large mountains. I, I was in Africa. I got to see Kilimanjaro from a distance. Impressive. I've seen the Rockies. Impressive. But only time really up close, I was in, after my ninth grade year, I got to go to the S- Switzerland, and I was standing at the foot of one of the Swiss Alps called the Jungfrau. And it's not even that big of a mountain comparatively. I mean, Everest is like 29. This is like 15,000 feet. So that's bigger than the hills of Georgia, but it's not in, in, in the spectrum of the, the whole thing. It's not that big. But it's big. And up until that point, I'd seen pictures. I'd seen stuff on TV, but I had never seen the majesty of a mountain like that. And then I spent three hours riding up a cog railroad to the top of this puppy and just got to see it up close, to see its vastness and its largeness. And it was so amazing. And what I want, and and I think that some of us as a church, we've seen the mountains in the picture and we think, oh, that's nice. But I want this series, I want you to get up next to the mountain. And I want you to see the vastness and the greatness and the bigness of God right up close. Enough pictures. Let's, let's, let's see who God is in his greatness. That's my prayer for this series. And if you don't, here's the problem with some of you, and, and I'm not trying to be harsh, but I'm going to be harsh. You don't see God's good, bigness and his love because you think, of course God loves me. I'm good. I'm a good person. I'm, I'm better than the meth head. I'm better than the prostitute. I'm better than the drug dealer. I'm better than this guy. You really believe that, and you believe that God loves you because something you've done, and because you do, you got God in a picture. Oh, that's nice, but you don't really get the vastness and bigness of God's love. Let me just tell you, I believe that God's bigness and vastness and greatness is far beyond what we can even fathom, that we have no clue how big it is, nor do we understand how depraved we really are. And we need an accurate view of that so we will see the bigness of the mountain that is God's love, that before time began, He chose you to be his own. He loves us. That before time began, he sent his only son in his heart. He he purposed to send his son, whom he loved. It's not like he didn't love Jesus. He loves Jesus. But he loves you so much that he crushes his own son, that he pours out his own wrath on his own son, an eternity worth of hell he pours out in his son so that you could have eternal life and be with him. He loves us. Every good and perfect gift that you have in your life is from him. He loves us. He hears every prayer, every song, every tear cried he catches, every burden he wants to carry. He loves us. He does far more beyond than we can fathom and ask. He loves us, right? And so what I want to do as we close here is I just want to stand at the mountain. I want you guys to just stand for just a few moments, and we're doing something a little bit different. Look, we're going to come in the next couple weeks. We're going to deal with marriage. We're going to deal with money. We're going to deal with worship. He's going to get there, but not before he establishes, hey, 
I'm doing all this. I'm coming to you guys because I love you. And I want your heart. I just want your worship. I want you to love me back. Because if you love him, you're going to respond to him. And when he corrects, you're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, because I love you. I want to I correct. I want to do what you've called me to do because you love me. It's all rooted in his love. So let's stand and do this. And so what's going to happen is this. No, you guys don't stand. I'm sorry. I meant stand at the foot of the mountain. Don't mean to confuse y'all. Here's what's going to happen. Praise team, you guys can come up. And I have chosen just a couple of folks from our church. They're just going to read a couple passages about God's love to you. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect and think about God's great love. And so what I want you to do is bow your heads, close your eyes. They're going to read. At the end of their time of reading, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And the men are going to hand it out. And you guys, as they hand it out, you just take when you're ready. Ethan and his team are going to do a song that you don't need to sing. It's just kind of a special music for them to sing over you guys. But just this is a time. You don't often get five to ten minutes, y'all, to just think about God's love. Because you're all busy and you're Facebooking and you're all going to work and all these things. Here's five to ten minutes for you to sit and think about God's love for you. That he says, I loved you. So don't waste it. Stand at the foot of the mountain of his grace. Listen to the words of scripture. Hold tangible evidences, bread and, and juice that represent his love. And then we'll respond through singing uh, about the greatness of our God. Let me pray. Um, and then these guys will come read. Father, just show your goodness to us. Um, I pray your spirit would be just moving through people right now, wherever they're at. Maybe they had a great week, maybe they had a bad week, that you would be demonstrating your love once again by your words, by your spirit comforting, and then let us just worship and give you glory for Christ's name's sake and pray. From the Old Testament, Lamentations 3, 19 through 22. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. This is Psalm 63, 1-4. O oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Romans 5, 1 through 8. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 4, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 